Well, a question for you to start with this evening is this. Uh, have you ever been frustrated as a Christian? Ever had a time where you've just felt really frustrated? Uh, and I don't mean frustrated with other people. Uh, I don't mean frustrated with society or, or with your government. Uh, I mean, have you ever been frustrated with yourself? Have you ever felt frustrated that you're not the kind of Christian you would like to be? Ever felt frustrated that you're not able to serve the Lord in the way that you think you should? Do you long to be a more wholehearted, more passionate, more consistent follower of the Lord Jesus? If you've ever felt like that, then I imagine that what Joshua says in verse 19 of the passage Daph has just read stands out in big flashing red lights to you. Just look there at verse 19 in case you missed it. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. You are not able to serve the Lord. It's a striking thing to say, isn't it? Uh, We've reached the end of our series in the book of Joshua. And now Joshua is an old man. He's about to die. And so he's gathered the people of Israel together for one last speech, for his final word. And in verse 19, he says, You're not able to serve the Lord. Not much of a pep talk, is it, Joshua? Not the kind of verse that we're going to stick on our fridge. It it seems a strange thing to say in your final speech. It seems strange, but but it is true, isn't it? It it is true that by themselves, Israel are unable to serve the Lord. Their, Their history shows that. No matter how hard they try, no matter how many times they commit themselves to the Lord, time and time again, they fail. Time and time again, they forget the Lord. They worship and serve other things instead of him. They are unable to serve the Lord. And it's not just Israel. The same is true for us, isn't it? That's part of the frustration that we feel. No matter how many new Bible reading plans we come up with, no matter how many strategies we put in place to fight sin, no matter how many times we commit ourselves to praying every day, sooner or later, we fail. We give up. We give in. We're unable to serve the Lord. So what do we do? What do we do when we're frustrated by our own weakness, by our own inability, our own sin? What do we do? What what should the Israelites do? Here in Joshua 24, Joshua says the big thing you need to do is to remember God's grace. When faced with your own inability and sin, don't despair. Don't just think you need to pull your socks up and try a bit harder. Don't just try and come up with a a new version of the last strategy that you thought of. No, no, the first thing Joshua says is remember God's grace. That's really what this final chapter is all about. At the end of his life, as I said, Joshua has gathered together God's people one last time because he wants to tell them about God's grace and the difference that that will make to them as they live life in the land. 
And so the first thing we're going to see is the display of God's grace. Uh, Just look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond, beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. Joshua begins by taking the people back to their beginning, back to the great father Abraham. And what does God say about this great man, this great father of the faith? He was an idol-worshipping pagan when I found him. Uh, This man, Abraham, bowed down to wooden statues and false gods, just like everyone else. But I chose him, says the Lord. Out of my unconditional, undeserved grace, I chose Abraham. I chose him and I promised to bless him with a a people and a land to live in. I would be his God. Not because of anything in Abraham, but because of my grace alone. You see, God chose Abraham. He chose Israel. And if you're a Christian here this evening, then he chose you. God chooses people by his grace. And then he rescues them by his grace. Uh, Joshua, or the Lord, fast forwards in in their history, and Israel are now slaves in Egypt. Uh, But verse 5, Then I, the Lord, sent Moses and Aaron and afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. Once again, in the book of Joshua, the Lord reminds the Israelites of that miraculous rescue from slavery in Egypt. At a point in their lives when they were utterly helpless, when they were oppressed, and the only thing they could do was cry out to the Lord, he came to save them. He rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and having brought them out of Egypt, having rescued them, he provided for them. Despite their sin, despite their moaning, despite their grumbling, he gave them food and water in the wilderness. He provided for his people. And he protected them from Balak and Balaam. He he gave them all that they needed. He protected them from their enemies because of his grace. God chooses God rescues and God delivers his people. Verse 11, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. Way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham a people and a land to live in. And as we've seen, the book of Joshua really has been the story of that promise delivered. And so every single Israelite who was gathered there that day knew that the reason they were in the land, the reason they had rest from war and an inheritance to enjoy was because the Lord had delivered them, just as he promised, just as he said he would. And so here is a display of God's grace. Did you notice the repeated word through those first few verses? It's I, isn't it? I did it, 
says the Lord. I chose, I took, I rescued, I provided, I destroyed, I delivered, I did it, says the Lord. Look at verse 12 with me. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them, and you eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. God says, you didn't do it. I did it. I did it all. From choosing Abraham to rescuing and delivering Israel, it has all been because of God's undeserved, unconditional grace. That is what the Lord wants the people of Israel to understand. And if you're a Christian here this evening, well, he wants you to understand that too. In Ephesians chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul says that in Christ we have been chosen before the creation of the world. Before we thought a thought or said a word, God chose us. And then in Christ we have been rescued. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross paid the price for our sin, for our rebellion against God. And so now we stand forgiven, cleansed, washed clean, righteous in God's sight. Not because of anything that we do, but because of what Christ has done. I did it, says the Lord. And in Christ our future inheritance is guaranteed. There is no doubt about our deliverance, no doubt or question about our future because we are united with Christ. God has chosen us, rescued us, and delivered us. And he's done it, Ephesians 1 verse 7, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. So what do you do when you're faced with your own failure, your own inability to serve the Lord? Well, first and foremost, you remember God's grace. You remember the display of God's grace. You remember that he didn't choose you because of your ability to serve him. He chose you because of his grace. He rescued you and he delivered you to be a picture, a display of his grace in your life. Remember God's grace. Uh, But that's not all, because secondly, we see uh, we need to remember the demand of God's grace. Uh, Having reminded Israel of all that God has done, uh, Joshua then shows them the implications in verse 14. Uh, Just look at verse 14 with me. He says, Now, or therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. God's amazing grace demands wholehearted obedience. Uh, The right response for Israel, uh, for all that God has done for Israel, is for them to serve him with all faithfulness. And again, we see exactly the same thing going on in the New Testament, don't we? Not too long ago, we worked through the book of Romans in our morning services, and we saw in Romans chapters 1 to 11 the display of God's grace, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and so there is now no condemnation for those who believe in him. God displays his grace 
in the Lord Jesus. But then what was the implication in verse 12? In view of God's mercy, in view of his grace, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. You see, God's grace demands wholehearted obedience. What does that look like? What does that involve? Look at verse 14 again. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says you're going to serve someone. You're going to serve someone and wholehearted obedience means you need to choose You can either fear and serve the Lord or you can fear and serve some other God or idol. And notice that this isn't a a kind of an either or here, is it? It's not a, it's, uh, it's, sorry, notice it is an either or, not a both and. In other words, you can't have a a bit of God and a bit of idols. Uh, God's grace demands a, a wholehearted commitment Serving him means throwing away the other gods. He says it twice, once in verse 14 and again in verse 23. Joshua needs to be clear. You need to get rid of those old gods. Why does he need to be clear? Because it seems that the Israelites were tempted to go for the kind of both and option. Did you notice where those old gods come from in verse 14? He says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The gods that Joshua is telling the people to throw away are the gods that they have brought with them all the way from Egypt. Even though they've experienced God's amazing grace in choosing them, in rescuing them, in delivering them, even though they've seen the Lord do wonderful things in bringing them out of Egypt across the Jordan and into the land, they've seen all of those things, they've experienced those things, yet they still keep their old idols tucked away in their tent, just in case. And so despite their bold proclamation in verse 16, of course we'll serve the Lord Joshua, of course we won't, Worship idols. How stupid, how ridiculous would that be? Despite that bold proclamation, Joshua knows their hearts. He knows what people are like. And he knows that we will always be tempted to worship and serve other things rather than the God who saves us. That's why he says in verse 19, you're not able to serve the Lord." He's a holy God and his holiness demands perfection, perfect obedience. And he's a jealous God. He requires complete, wholehearted faithfulness, complete commitment. And before we start to think, that that sounds a bit arrogant, God. It it sounds a bit arrogant to say that God is jealous. I don't don't like the idea of of a jealous God. Just imagine 
a bride promising in her wedding vows that she will love her future husband and that she will be 90% committed to him. He'll get most of her love and affection, but she can't promise him complete faithfulness. That would be asking too much. It would be crazy, wouldn't it? It would be crazy. What what husband would be happy with 90% commitment from their wife? But that is what it's like when we think we can have God and idols in our life. And so unsurprisingly, Joshua says God is jealous. He won't be cheated on with other gods. Uh, he's jealous and there are consequences for unfaithfulness. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve these foreign gods, he'll turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. You can't have God and idols, says Joshua. And it's not enough to simply say, we'll serve the Lord. No, because your words... They need to be followed with action. Verse 23, you must throw away physically, just get rid of those foreign gods among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. God's grace demands wholehearted commitment. In our words, yes, but also in our actions. Jesus says something similar, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. This is not both and. You can't have God and idols. Which means that this evening we need to ask ourselves, where are the hidden idols in my life? What are the things that I'm keeping tucked away, just in case? Tim Keller suggests some questions that we can ask ourselves to help us identify some of those hidden idols. I'm going to read them. And as I do, just, just think in your own heads about how you might answer them. What they tell you about your heart and the idols that are lurking there. What is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? What if I failed or lost it would cause me that I don't even want to li- to think I don't even want to live? What keeps me going? What do I rely on to comfort myself when things go wrong or become difficult? What do I think most easily about? Where does my mind go? When I'm free? What makes me feel the most self worth? What am I proudest of? What do I really want and expect out of life? What really makes me happy? Each of us will answer those questions differently. And many of our answers will include good things. But idolatry is when we take those good things and we turn them into God things. Idolatry is when we base our security, our satisfaction on those things 
And so we end up serving and worshipping them rather than God. And the Lord says that is like cheating on your spouse. It's adultery. God's grace demands that you root out and rid yourself of idols. Throw them away. Have nothing more to do with them. And serve the Lord with all faithfulness. That's the choice Israel faced. It's the choice that we face. You can have the God of grace, or you can have idols, false gods. But not both. You must choose, says Joshua. You must decide. And that brings us to the last thing we're going to see this evening. The decision for God's people. You see, the display and the demand of God's grace is all designed really to show Israel what it means to live in covenant relationship with the Lord. And it's that covenant relationship that Joshua comes to at the end of his speech. Just look at verse 25. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people there at Shechem. He reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. When we talk about covenants, we might think of something like a marriage or an old building. But in Joshua's day, a covenant was often something that happened between a king and his subjects. And these ancient covenants, they would generally follow the same pattern. A pattern that we actually see in Joshua chapter 24. So first, you would have an account of the king's victories, uh, which is what we get in verses 1 to 13. That was the display of God's grace, his victories over his enemies. Uh, Then you would have the requirements of the covenant, uh, showing you how to live in relationship with this king. We saw that in verses 14 to 15. Throw away your idols and serve the Lord. After that, the king would spell out the consequences of breaking the covenant, verses 19 and 20. And then there would be witnesses to the covenant. In this case, it's the people and this stone pillar that Joshua sets up in verses 26 and 27. So Joshua 24, it follows the standard format of an ancient covenant. But the striking thing here is that it's the Lord God who is willing to make this sort of covenant with half-hearted, unfaithful, sinful Israel. You see, the people of Joshua's day would have been familiar with covenants going on between equals or between kings and subjects, but never between a God and his people. But that's what we see here. The one true God binding himself to his people in covenant relationship. And so God has chosen them. He's rescued them. He's delivered them. He's done everything for them. And all he asks that they do is commit themselves to him alone. If they do that, he promises that they will live in the land he's given them. They'll enjoy his blessing all the days of their lives. That is a covenant with the Lord. That's the agreement. And in verse 31, it seems as though things start well. 
Verse 31 says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Things start well. Israel live and serve the Lord. But if you know anything of their history, you'll know that it doesn't last very long. In fact, just a few pages on in your Bible, in Judges chapter 2, we read this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. It takes one generation and Israel are unfaithful. You cannot serve the Lord, says Joshua. But alongside Israel's unfaithfulness, the rest of the Bible is the story of God's faithfulness. He has made a covenant with his people. He has promised them that they will enjoy rest in the land, the land that he gives them. He's promised them that they will live in relationship with him forever. The Lord has promised those things. And as we've seen time and time again in this series, God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises, no matter what. And so the question is how? How can he do that? How can a holy, jealous God live in covenant relationship with sinful, unfaithful people? Well, he does it by sending his son. He does it by sending Jesus. He sends Jesus who, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, brings a new covenant in his blood. You see, God knows, doesn't he? He knows that by ourselves we are unable to be faithful. He knows that we cannot serve him as we ought. And so he sends his only son to bear the consequence of our unfaithfulness. On the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that our idolatry deserves. And he does it so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made right with God. And so it's by believing in Jesus that we enter into this new covenant, a covenant in which our sin is dealt with and our hearts are changed so that we are now able to serve the Lord in all faithfulness. This is a covenant in which God gives us his own spirit to help us rid ourselves of our idols and live wholeheartedly for him. And so just like the Israelites, we have a choice. We have a decision to make. We can either live in covenant relationship with the God of grace, the God who has done everything possible, everything necessary for us to know him, or we can reject him. Or we can carry on serving the idols of our hearts, the things that promise us so much, but deliver so little. That is the decision that we face. 
And actually, it's a decision that we face every single day. Will we serve the Lord or will we serve idols? We need to ask God to help us for the grace to live in wholehearted obedience to him. As we finish, we're going to pause for a few minutes now. And as we pause, I just want us to think, uh, first of all, about the Lord's faithfulness to us. About all that it cost him to be in covenant relationship with us. And as we think about that, maybe think back to those questions and think again about where those hidden idols are. Where are the things that we are drawn to and tempted to worship and serve rather than the God of grace? Let's have a bit of silence.